Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139 right now. We, uh, man, we're suspending, if you haven't noticed from last week, we're suspending our, our series through the book of Acts just for the time being. And we thought it was a good idea to maybe sort of shift over to the Psalms. And we want to refocus our minds on the person of God. Last week, uh, we, ta- we went through Psalm 46. We talked about the fact that God uh, is, is near us. And that's really the sort of the shape of that Psalm, reminding us that no matter how cataclysmic our lives are, that God is near us. And, and what we're gonna find out and look into through Psalm 139 is the fact that God knows us. So God is near us, but God also knows us. So again, if you're, at home, you wanna to go to Psalm 139. If you have a device, man, that's great too. We're gonna to be in the English Standard Version, the ESV, um, as we go through our passage this morning. You know, I wanted to start out by asking this question. Does anyone remember life before Google? I mean, do we even, rem- I, I, I kinda of don't even remember that time. Um, and then it, it, kind of comes, it kind of comes home um, and how ridiculous it is um, in those moments because sometimes you, 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 you forget that Google exists, right? And you'll be in the middle of a conversation or in a group, right? And you're trying to remember some fact about something until it dawns on you and you say, why are we wondering anymore? Would someone just grab their phone and click on Google? Because we're, just a, we're, we're a Google click away, it seems like, from just instantaneous knowledge now. And so we're used to being able to know things almost, you know, at least on a, on a cursory level, almost about everything. But what we find out about Google is that um, man, it doesn't fill in all the gaps for us. Google is, is knowledge, but it's knowledge with limitations. And the reason why it's knowledge with limitations is because Google can't really know us. Google can't really know you. And for that matter, um, neither can most of the things in our life that we go to um, as security and comfort for us, right? Um, our, our money doesn't really know us, right? Our, our phones, as much as we like to think they're all customized and they're actually reading our thoughts, and sometimes it kind of feels that way, um, our, our phones don't actually know us. Our computers don't know us. Our, our music, our, you know, our Netflix doesn't really know us. Our art projects, our, our hobbies, our jobs, they don't really know us. Us. And so in Psalm 139, what we're going to see is that David, the writer of this psalm, this song, he reflects on how God knows us with this level of unlimited and intimate knowledge of us. And of course, the, the official word that we use in, in the church world here to describe God's knowledge is this word called omniscience. And what that word means is that there is nothing that is unknown to God, he is all knowing. And one of the things that we're going to attempt to unpack about God's knowledge is that it's not merely informational, right? God is not just like a, big, a bigger version of Google for us, right? God is, has an unlimited omniscient level of knowledge, but it's a knowledge that is personal. So when we think about God, we, we think about someone who knows us intimately and, and unlimitedly, if that's a word, right? He knows our minds. He knows our whereabouts. He knows our origins. And that's what we're gonna see in Psalm 139. And by the way, he also knows our frame. He knows our, our bodies. He knows that you are worried right now. He knows that I'm worried right now. He knows that your anxiety levels are, are peaking for some of you. He knows that some of you are experiencing a level of uh, mental fatigue and a level of exhaustion that you couldn't have anticipated even a few weeks ago because you're in a scenario now that is unlike anything you've experienced. 
So we're going to see how David is able to deal with that as he wrote Psalm 139. Now, the other thing we're going to look at in the text is David's sort of surprising reaction to being this intimately known by an omniscient God. Because the important question that we want to answer today, for those of you who consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, is if God really has this perplexing amount of knowledge that he has chosen to apply to us in such a personal way, what does this tell us about God's opinion of us and how it should change our motivations and the way that we think about God? And so that's what we're gonna attempt to look at today. So again, Psalm 139, the Psalm begins for us right here by saying, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. So David begins this prayer, this song in verse one with a statement he's making about God's personal interaction and involvement in his life. He says, oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. And then in verse two through 16, he makes three reflections on just how deep God's knowledge goes, which is he, he knows what David is thinking, number one. And then number two, he, he knows where David is going. He knows David's geography. And then third, he knows where David came from. So we get this all intimate, all knowing knowledge from God that, that centers in on David's thoughts, his location and his origin. And the first one is God knows what David is thinking. Let's pick up in verse one and we'll go through verse six. And it says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And we will just stop right now for a minute. So David is saying, he's saying right now, God sees my every mundane movement. And brothers and sisters, we have a lot of mundane movements right now, right? In the day to day. But this is what David's saying. He sees every one of those movements. He knows every thought I'm thinking. He watches every path I'm walking down. He observes every hour I'm sleeping. He knows every word I'm going to speak before it's spoken. So God knows where David's going to go. He sets David's boundaries. He places his hand on David to personally guide him. And then when we get to verse six, it's like David's head is almost going to explode from this kind of knowledge about God's knowledge, right? It says such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So David says, man, this is too beyond my grasp. I'm totally unable to even fathom what this means to have a God that knows me at this level. And so right from the beginning here in Psalm 139, we see that God gets personal with David because God is a person. God is a person himself. And that means something for us. He's not just this deity that exists, that just floats, that just hovers above the clouds, but this is a person who knows us personally. And if we're being honest, if I'm being honest, I mean, you read this and there is a measure of fear and sobriety that begins to well up inside, right? As we, as we even, you know, get this sort of this, this basic insight into God's omniscience, right? I mean, you can almost compare it to like, man, how 
many of you, I mean, I'll just speak for myself, we experience just a near panic attack when someone shows up at the door unannounced because they might see like what you haven't cleaned up. They might see what you haven't fixed. They might see what just like is the real you, what's laying all over the floor of your house, right? They're going to see the unpolished you. They're going to see the you that you would never dare post on Instagram. That's what they're seeing, right? And the problem is in those moments is that really, in, in really sort of the depths of our soul, what we're really afraid of, of is, is of being found out, of being exposed. What David is saying here is that God has found him out. God has exposed him. And we see this all through the Bible, that the level of God's knowledge is such that he knows even our very thoughts. Ezekiel 11.5 says, for I know the things that come into your mind, God says. And then in Psalm 94.11, it says, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. So it gives us some context. It gives us a description even of our thoughts. And then in Hebrews 4.13, it says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So this brings us to this place of actually, not that God uh, just knows what we're thinking, but we are actually held accountable to the words that we are thinking, right? So this is what David is trying to tell us about this intimate knowledge that God has of his people. He's saying, your thoughts are not like needles in a haystack to God, right? It's not like God can't find the missing sock when he searches your mind, Jess, right? It's not like you, Scott, are a mystery to God. Your thoughts don't escape him, right? Your decisions don't perplex him. Your actions don't surprise him. He never takes a gander into the inner chambers of your mind and says, wow, I didn't think I was going to find that there, huh? Right? That's not what God does. Our minds are not uncharted territory to him. And so one of the questions that comes up as we read about this level of intimate knowledge is, does that, does that scare you? Is that something that unsettles you or is it something that actually soothes you? Is it something that gives you comfort? Because if it, if it scares you, understanding this level of knowledge that God has of you, it, it actually gets worse for us as we go down the passage because David says not only does God know what he's thinking but he knows where I'm going to go because he's omnipresent he's everywhere meaning there is no place where God is not because his spirit is present in every place so God knows what David is thinking and he also knows where David is going let's pick up in verse 7 it says where shall I go from your spirit or where, where shall I flee from your presence, he says. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Let's stop right there. The dilemma here is that not only can we not hide our thoughts from God, but we can't hide ourselves from him either, right? And that's sobering, right? So David asked in verse seven, he said, where can I even go? Where, where can I even flee? He says, if I ascend to heaven, if I descend to Sheol, which is like the grave, he said, the presence of God's spirit, it's there. 
He said, if I'm able to escape to the most uncharted, remote, and desolate places, he's trying to take this thought as far as he can. He's saying God is there. And I think sometimes what happens is that we think if we ignore God, then he sort of eventually and conveniently forgets us and stops noticing what we're up to. But the problem with that thought, which I think some of us just naturally fall into thinking, is that that's a God of our own making at the end of the day. That's a God of our own making when we believe that maybe he's like us and that if we're out of sight, we're out of mind. But we see the opposite here of the way David is describing God. And actually we see that all through the Bible in the book of Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, verse 23, the Lord speaks and he says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? He, He says, he's using logic here. He said, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And then in Proverbs 15, verse three, it says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So God sees everything. There's nothing that escapes his grasp. Remember when we read the book of Jonah, remember the story of Jonah who was a prophet. He was given assignment by God that he didn't want to do. So instead of going to the place that God had told him to go, he boards this sort of ancient ocean liner and he goes in the opposite direction, right? Somehow believing that, you know, he had some GPS that like God didn't have, right? And what happened? Well, you know, it's a long story, but Jonah was thrown Overboard, God redirected his course and brought him back to the original place that he had commanded him um, to go. But, but we do that, right? We think out of sight, out of mind. We kind of run that way. We, we roll that way. We start thinking that God has the kind of mind that we have, which is just, I'm not even thinking about it. Um, so therefore, um, he's not thinking about it. I remember when I was a kid, I had this really crazy moment that all of you should judge me for, but I was about six years old and my, my neighbor friend, her name was Dawn, um, she had this really great idea while her mom was upstairs getting ready that we should get into the, like the, the china cabinet and grab all of this uh, like crystal and all these dishes and just go into the driveway and just see how many of them we could smash. And um, not being a super bright kid, um, I thought that that was a fantastic idea. And so we did that. And we did it for like, I think until we just cleared out the whole cabinet, right? Until we heard uh, Dawn's mom, Sheila, coming downstairs saying, uh, what's that noise that I, you know, I'm hearing right now? And so what I did was um, very rationally, I, I ran home and I hid under my dad's desk in his office, the place that he only spends his entire day at, right? Again, not a super bright kid, um, but unlike me and Jonah, right? Not super bright dudes. Um, David takes comfort in a God that he can't escape from because he knows that being pursued by a God like this is ultimately going to lead to his good because God not only leads David, but he holds David. He not only sees where David is, but he covers David in the security of his arms and in his love and in his grace. So not only is God not locationally challenged, but he's also not vision impaired. David describes God as someone for whom the darkness is not 
dark. Let me read verses 11 and 12 again, because they're just, they're really phenomenal verses. It says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. He says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So when everything went dark in David's life, which happened a lot in his life, he knew that God's vision of him was never in question because the barriers that David experienced were never barriers to God. When David was in a murky place, when he couldn't see any light at the end of a particular tunnel that he found himself trapped in, God was not having that same experience. And so this is just really, I think it's a stunning reminder to us that being known by God means that we are never apart from God. Twice David says, you are there, you are there, he says. And we know that today, given our cultural moment, is that some of us feel very alone today. You know, social distancing, it's just, it's an isolating experience. It's not something that is part of our usual daily practices, right? Relationships that you rely on, they look differently right now. Togetherness, it has limitations. So we come into these moments and we pray like David. We pray when we feel like that darkness is descending, when we can't see so far in front of us and we receive his promises anew like David did here. Promises that he will hold us and he will lead us and he will keep us. Now David, he spoke these words because they were true. He didn't speak them because they felt like they were true. But it's through this prayer and intimacy to God and the presence of God that we experience through his word that is going to be what covers us in the darkness so that we experience the light of his presence. At the end of the day, if the only people you have to rely on are those that have the potential to not be there and to be as vision impaired as you are, you're going to lack hope. And David said, I need a deeper, lasting, impenetrable hope. And that's what he's pointing out here, that God is for him and God is to his people. Psalm 18, verse 28 says, for it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. Because what happens when the light goes on in a dark place? Well, we, we finally see what's there. We finally find our way we finally know who's with us. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, for God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this omnipresent knowledge of God, it shines through the darkness of our hearts to provide us with the knowledge of God's glory, which we find in the face of Jesus Christ. This is how darkness is transformed into brightness. The question we have to ask is, is God the one who lights our lamp and lightens our darkness? Or are we using artificial light? Are we using artificial lights that eventually run down or burn out? Because more than ever, the coronavirus is revealing our artificial lights in this particular moment. It's revealing that those things that we thought we had to count on, those things that we thought we had to rely on just aren't super reliable for us. And in a moment, 
They can be taken from us and we can be pushed into a situation to where we don't have all of those easy clicks to give us the kind of light that we feel is illuminating our lives when in reality, it's something that can go dark within a minute. David says, we need something beyond the artificial light of our world. And he points to God for that light. So not only does God know David's thoughts, not only does God know all of David's whereabouts, but he also knows David's origins. And that's because he formed David. He knows where David comes from, right? Let's pick up in verse 13. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So uh, this is not a, a biology lesson as much as just this beautiful poem and song lyric describing sort of this unparalleled creation and design and artistry of God in the formation of just one human being. Look at the language that David uses here. He says words like formed and knitted together and fearfully and wonderfully made, created in, in secret, intricately woven in the depths. So before David was even conceived, God's eyes were already upon him and his days were written down. Do you ever think of God having that level of knowledge about you, knowing who you were before you were even something to be known by anybody else? Do we think of God having that level of depth of knowledge of our person? Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 32, six, he says, is God not your father who created you, who made you, and established you? So he poses that question for us to reflect on, say, remember who God is. And then in Job chapter 10, verse 11, Job says, you clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. So God has this intricate process of creating and designing every human being. Now, we could be just a product of some distant, all-knowing guru God, but this is not what God is like. This is not the language here that we get from David. We're not just a collection of God's inventions, right? I mean, he, he didn't create the earth as a place to just warehouse and catalog us while we gather dust sort of in, you know, in security and forgotten obscurity in some warehouse, right? We are his works of wonder. We have frames or bones that are never hidden from him, but known by him. Psalm 103, 14 says, for he knows our frame. He knows our bones. He remembers that we are dust because in Genesis, we're told that Adam was made from the dust of the earth. So God is a creator who knows his creation intimately, just like a painter can tell you everything about the portrait he's painted, just like a musician can tell you every single thing about the song he's written or recorded. He remembers what he did in Genesis 2 verse 7 when he formed the man 
of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So this is surprising for us as we get into the level of depth of God's knowledge of how we are made up. And we're kind of surprised by it. The question is, are we as surprised as David was? Are we as awestruck? Are we kind of as dumbfounded as David was as he reflected on God's, this sort of perplexing yet personal knowledge that he had of him? Because what's surprising is that this doesn't cause David to despair. Do you you catch that in there? David's reaction tells us something about David's relationship to God to be searched and to be known by God, which is that song we just sang, to this degree, it it could be a terrible thing, but for David, it's a wonderful thing. For David, God's intimate knowledge of him is both a precious truth and a comforting reality. Look what it says in verse 17. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. God's thoughts toward us are exhaustive, yet even given everything he knows about us and everything he will find, we are still with him every day when the sun rises, David says. That's encouraging. That's the encouragement I need right now to remember that his mercies are new to us every morning. I need to remember that David is awestruck by God's closeness to him. He's not scared, he's soothed by it. And that's surprising to see David's reaction to this level of intimate knowledge. The other surprise is that because of what David knows about the God who knows him, it immediately stirs this raging passion inside of him to distance himself from the things that God hates. Now, the psalm just takes this just kind of really peculiar turn right here in verse 19. Look what it says. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? David says, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So this is not the place that you thought this psalm was heading. This is not the place that any of us thought this psalm was was going to go. It almost feels like David has like anger management issues right here um, until you understand what knowing God and being known by God should stir inside of us. You know, not long ago, we were watching our neighbors and they were, they were playing with their daughter on the front lawn and they were just, you know, there's laughing, the kids are running around and they're enjoying themselves until like, it just for some reason, all kids that have this addiction to uh, streets and roads, um, their little girl just casually wanders out into the street. And of course the mood uh, quickly changed from happy to horror uh, real fast. They immediately dove into the street, removed her from danger before any cars came. And this kind of clues us into the response that David has here to the knowledge of God's glory, which is a glory that shines through the darkness of our hearts. And it should, like it did with David here, create in us a total hatred of anything that stands against God and anything that tries to diminish his glory. 
David says, depart from me. He uses really strong language. In fact, it's strong language that we don't use enough. It's language that, that we need to, to use in our own lives when we think about those things that push against God's glory, that push against God being someone who is all knowing and all loving and all powerful. Because here's the deal, if you're serving an all holy, all just, all knowing God, then you know that all of God's loves and all of God's hates should be the very things that you conform your heart and life to. Because these are the things that lead to everlasting life with God, which is what we're gonna see that David says. So David pleads with God to deal justly with the wicked because he loathes the things that God loathes, which is indicative that David also loves the things God loves. So we gotta ask ourselves if that describes us. As we understand this level of knowledge that God has on us, do we also understand that being known by God is also taking upon us the character of God and that we need to have the kind of hate that David hated against anything that pressed against God's glory. That needs to rise up in us too. When we see things like injustice, when we see things like abuse, when we see things that don't give God glory, push against the character of God. That needs to push against us in that same way. So because God loves what God loves and hates what God hates, he ends his prayer pleading with God to reveal anything in him that might be grievous to him. And again, here's what's interesting is that David doesn't assume that his heart is naturally distanced from all those things that he just said he hated. He says in verse 23 and 24, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And this is what's surprising about David's reaction is that knowing what God knows, David still chooses to be searched and known by God. And this kind of brings us up to kind of a dilemma within our own hearts. Because if God is all knowing, it means that the things he reveals to us about both himself and us are true. Even if we don't understand them all the time. And so if that's true, then it's not going to be enough to simply know things about God. We're going to need our hearts transformed by God in such a way that our lives are conformed to his knowledge because here's the thing and this is what I need you to hear me with right now. You can know things about God and many of you listening know things about God. You know a lot of things about God. In fact, if you spent time in church or Sunday school or youth groups or Bible studies or community groups or you're, you've watched sermons online like you're doing right now or you've cracked open your Bible and read that, if you've memorized scripture, you can know things about God. But what's so interesting here is that the focus of David's prayer is not about the knowledge he has of God. It's that God knows him. It's that he is known by God. And Paul kind of unpacks this for us in 1 Corinthians 8.3. He says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He is known by God. And then Galatians 4.9, Paul says again, but now you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. And he says, so then how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once 
more. So in other words, just knowing God doesn't necessarily mean that we are known by God. It's the same thing about, you know, if you know about a famous athlete, you know, if you're somebody that's just clicking on ESPN2 every day and you learn things and facts and you gain knowledge about certain athletes, it doesn't mean that they're your friend, right? Um, none of you are going to uh, do a cookout this afternoon with LBJ, most likely. You probably know a lot of things about him because you know stuff about him, but it doesn't mean that LeBron knows you or knows anything about you, or it will be invitational to you because of the level at which he knows you and the friendship that has been secured by that knowledge. That's not gonna happen for us. So just knowing things about somebody doesn't mean that you are known by that person. So the question then for us is, how do you know that you are known by God. Well, uh, Paul just told us in Corinthians by saying those who love God are known by God. So you know you're known by God by the love that you have for God and the things of God because you love the things he loves and you hate the thing he hates like David, which are the elementary principles of the world. And so this is what happens to our hearts as we're starting to process this is that we want to be known but we're afraid of the God that we think we might know. But what we've learned is that to be known means to be invited in. Because I know things about many people, but because I'm not known by them, I'm not going to get invited into their home, for example. So to be known by God means being invited into him, to hear his words, to hear his heart and be heard by him. And we want to be known but we also wanna be known by someone who's safe. And the problem is, is that God is not safe. And somebody who has this level of knowledge of us is not safe. But although God is not safe, in the way that we think of safe, we know that God is good because if we ask God to search us, he's going to reveal our sin and lead us, David says, in the way everlasting or the way that endures for all time. So as we close this morning, this is what we wanna ask and answer is that if God has this perplexing amount of knowledge and applies it to us in the most personal way, what did David do that we should be doing ourselves? And I think the first thing is that we should be, number one, second guessing our opinions of ourselves. Why does David ask God to search him? Because he assumes he doesn't know himself well enough to do it himself. So we need to second guess our opinion, even of ourselves. See, we always think that nobody knows us better than ourselves. And in some ways that's true, but at the end of the day, our heart is deceptive and we deceive ourselves. So even the ways that we think we know ourselves, we don't. And so that's why David is asking to be searched and known by God. And then secondly, we need to trust as God is doing that searching, that his opinion of us is the right opinion. Because God knows what you're really like. And here's what's so humbling and so sobering is that he doesn't accept that. He accepts you based on what his son Jesus is really like, which is perfectly righteous and therefore perfectly acceptable to God. And this gets us to the gospel, the good news, which is that Jesus had to die as our acceptable sacrifice so that we might bask in a new and glory-filled glow of intimacy and knowability with God. 
Because if God's opinion of us is good, we don't have to look for praise and acceptance from those who are enemies of God. Their good opinions, quote unquote, are not what give us our sense of goodness anymore, which by the way, was never goodness at all. The problem is, is that we're afraid of what God will find. And David said, God already knows. But the fact that he searches us while knowing everything about us gives testimony to his love and his mercy and his grace. And we don't do that, by the way. Like when you find moldy bread in the fridge, you don't whip up a plate full of PB&Js. Like none of us do that, right? You toss it out. Well, thanks be to God that God is not you and God is not me. He knows the hand he's been dealt because he's the dealer. So if God was the kind of God who merely had knowledge to use against us, man, we'd never want to get close to him. We'd never want to be searched by him or known by him. But because God uses his knowledge of us to lead us in the way everlasting and to draw us near to him because he drew near to us, by sending Christ, who was God in the flesh, we know that this is a God we want near to us and to reveal anything to us that would stand against the joy of being known by him. A God who knows us this well also knows what's in the well of our souls. So if you're out there today and you're like, man, I have these deep insecurities, I have these questions, I have these objections, I have these attacks of panic. I have these fears now that are hard to conceal. What is God's response based on Psalm 139? Understanding, patience, compassion, grace, and love. Because the world is going to ask you to respond. They're going to demand that you respond in a different way. They're gonna ask you to worry. When the Bible has said, worship. They're going to say, freak out. When God is saying, be faithful as I'm faithful to you. They're going to say, you know what? Just grit your teeth and try harder. And God is saying, trust me. The world is going to say, just do everything you can to forget man. Just binge on something. God is saying, believe in me. Because that's what happens to a world that bases everything on something that can be lost, right? That's what happens if you're in a world and you have to base all of your hope on something that eventually you have to socially distance yourself from. But our social distancing in this particular moment can lead us to a deeper dependence on God. And not only a deeper dependence on God, but a deeper interdependence with God's people. Why? Because our hope is so otherworldly. And that's what David has been describing in Psalm 139. Because as the church, we have something different that's growing and breathing and compelling us and motivating us inside. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you know what that allows us to do as the church? Instead of social distancing ourselves in fear and just, just trying to gut it out until we're all through this, it allows us to value others as image bearers. It allows us to hate those things, even with what's happening today. It allows us to hate whatever devalues the things that God loves. And it motivates us out of love for God and others to keep our souls free from sin. So in God, 
a God that knows us at this level and a God who sent his son so that we could know him at the level that we want to have with him, which is peace and comfort and security. Man, this is where the hope of Jesus Christ comes to us and offers us something that just can't be found with all these other things that we now have to be socially distancing ourselves from. So our encouragement today as we read through Psalm 139 is draw near to this God. Know this God that knows you. How do we know this God? We know this God by believing and trusting in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, by coming before him, by confessing our sins, by saying, hey, this, this thing that I've been doing, all of these things that I've been trying to accumulate for myself, I, I'm getting such a wide screen, like panoramic picture of how easily they can be taken away. We need to press into the one thing that can never be taken away because it's something we can never earn and that's the hope of Jesus Christ. So will you bow your heads, will you pray with me that this hope that God has to offer us um, as intimately as he does by being a God who is omniscient, who has unlimited knowledge is ours today if we would just humble ourselves before him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we are this known by you we thank you that this level of intimate knowledge that you had with David is the same knowledge that you have with us. And it's something that shouldn't scare us if we are your children, but it should soothe us. It should remind us something of you in these unsettled and uncertain times, which is that you are not unsettled and there is nothing about you that is uncertain. So if you're logged in this morning, if you've clicked on this link and that is not describe you. We pray that you would come before the Lord in honesty and humility. You would bring your sin before him. You'd bring your questions before him. You'd bring that longing to be known before him. And you would ask him to meet you in this place. You would ask him to open up your heart to receiving the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, that your heart would move from trusting in those things that you now have to have social distance from to trusting the thing that will never be distanced from you. So we encourage all of us in the moment to put our trust in the God who knows us intimately so that we might know hope. We thank you for this truth, Lord. And we pray that you would continue to encourage us and open up our hearts to it as we open our hearts to others who need this message of the gospel in this moment. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Together we said, amen.